All right, I'm recording now. You want to go ahead and read the thing? I will go ahead and read the thing. Over the course of a November morning in CE-79, a Roman settlement on the Bay of Naples faced some very strange weather. A dark cloud hung over the city, looking for all the world like a black tree surrounded by dark branches in a thick column rising from a nearby mountain. Over the course of the day, it had changed into a heavy gray blanket, rapidly expanding and thick enough to blot out the sun. A shower began to rain down onto the roofs and streets. No ordinary rain, but tiny pebbles, unnaturally warm, falling from the sky between gusts of foul-smelling wind. Thousands of families gathered their children and braved the pebble rain to flee, pouring out the city gates and onto the roads leading to the harbor or north along the coast. Others huddled in the safest corners of their shops and homes, frantically packing their possessions for travel. Still others retired to windowless back rooms and prepared to wait it out, perhaps with some like-minded friends to pass the time. By midnight, regular tremors shook the ground underfoot, and the rain of pebbles had changed to flakes of ash. A gout of red fire was visible at the mountain peak. The mountain exploded. Flames leaped into the sky and began raining down, setting vineyards and fields aflame. Those watching from the city had just enough time to turn away from the site before a superheated cloud of gas and ash crashed into the city from the slopes above, moving with enough force to knock over houses and kill every living thing in its path. Over the course of the night, five more of the waves of ash and gas would overtake the city, incinerating hundreds and burying the remains and ruins below tons of ash. The mountain is Vesuvius and the city was called Pompeii. Thanks so much for that horrifying story, Greg. <laughs> Beloved listeners, welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Chair of the Volcanology Department here at Relative Disasters University. And I'm her brother Greg, President of Extremely Long-Term Archaeological Projects at Relative Disasters Incorporated. And today we're going to be talking about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in CE-79. So, what do we need to know about this, Ella? <laughs> you need to know so much. <laughs> And I feel like Pompeii as a disaster story often focuses on like two things, the loss of life and then the like the frozen or snapshot nature of the archaeological evidence. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Did you you made like a baking soda and vinegar paper mache volcano in grade school, right? Oh, yeah, I'm sure I did. I don't have huge memories of it, but most people do. <laughs> Pompeii is like the paper mache volcano story of volcano disasters it's sure. like we get it when we're kids we kind of have like a general overview and we just never kind of look into that a little more closely Vesuvius is kind of like the poster child for volcano volcanic explosions right yeah and we tend to learn about it in like a very simple way like there was a volcano in Italy that erupted so quickly no one had a chance to escape and like look at all these plaster casts of dead bodies ah Ugh. so it's a super straightforward story but it's always fascinated me, first because I'm very afraid of volcanoes and I think about them a lot. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> don't don't judge me. 
Uh, <laughs> no judgment. No judgment. I just know what to get you for your birthday now. A uh, volcano tour? Volcano helicopter yeah. ride? <laughs> just a volcano. I'm just going to give you one. <laughs> and then also, it always seemed like there had to be more to the story. Yeah. The simplified kind of... The grade school version doesn't Grade school it. version of the story. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't always, like make a ton of sense and so i was really interested to dig into this a little bit more okay so let me start with some background sure the area that we're going to be talking about is the eastern sea coast of the bay of naples okay. which is in southern italy mount vesuvius is a stratovolcano that's the most common kind of volcanoes they kind of erupt periodically and it builds up to like a cone shape with a crater on top and it sits on like a crescent of the only way I can describe this is like volcano buddies. They are called the Campanian Volcano Arc. Okay. This area of Italy is known as Campania or Campanian. And this cluster is near where the two continental plates of Africa and Europe meet. So it's thought that somehow the action of those plates grinding together is what causes the volcanoes to kind of build up energy and erupt once in a while okay so some of these volcanoes are dormant a lot of them are known to be active and were known to be active like as far back as people have been recording information about the area so that includes like mount etna and stromboli and vesuvius those are the only active volcanoes in europe oh okay and they're all in this they're all in this little zone they're buddies. Yeah, they're volcano buddies. Wow. I did not know <laughs> I'm that. I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> yes. They're volcano friends. Yes. The thing that is interesting to me about Vesuvius in particular mm -hmm. is that because it does go dormant for such long periods of time, when it erupted in, in 79, mm -hmm. the Romans had no records of it erupting before. No. The, the next closest time was in about 1200 BC. Right. And the Romans were only in control of Pompeii for about 150 years before Vesuvius erupted. Yikes. They didn't have a lot of history in that exact region, even though we think of Italy as being like all Roman all the time for thousands of years. Not really, no. <laughs> Not really this region, yeah. yeah. So why would you choose to live on an active volcano? Well, the soil's really good. Yes, the soil is very rich for the region, and it supports a ton of agriculture, including... Vineyards. Yes. Yeah. We lots need our of grapes. Things. At this point, Pompeii is also a harbor city. So it's on the Bay of Naples. So sure. there's maritime trade going on. And it's also incredibly beautiful. It's like warm, fresh air, views for miles. It sounds great. Okay. It's like a tropical paradise. It just happens to have a volcano in it. Right. And, you know, cool. if the volcano isn't actively erupting, you can kind of be like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's very nice here. Today is not the day. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy my vineyard. Cool. Uh, so the Romans, as I said, they kind of attacked and colonized the area around 89 BCE. And under Roman rule, Pompeii really takes off. So the Romans love it there. They build lots of new buildings. They bring in like all this interesting Roman technology, like running water. Uh, there's a new aqueduct. Mm -hmm. Everybody starts speaking Latin. Ooh. They're dressing in Roman style. And there's like this kind of flavor of entertainment. It's It becomes kind of a party city. Uh, the Romans like run around building baths and theaters and just giant vacation villas. Although they okay. aren't, <laughs> they aren't what you're thinking. 
They're like a combination of commercial space, uh, living space, and like political machinery. Okay. So these villas are huge. And a lot of them serve multiple families in multiple ways. Okay. So they're not luxury housing the way we think of luxury housing. Right. They're more like community centers that people happen to live in? Sort of, but they're also very exclusive. Okay. So not just anyone can walk into like the Villa of the Fallen and order up some great food. Gotcha. They're like party spaces, they're business spaces, and they're huge. They're like 60 rooms. Okay. So what the Romans don't realize when they take over Pompeii and start all these elaborate building projects is that they're building on layers and layers of not super stable geology. Right, because of that the tectonic right. plate edge that runs right through there. Right, and also Vesuvius has been erupting cyclically for like hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. And each eruption creates a layer of like ash, pumice, debris, that's then covered over with organic growth because, again, that's incredibly rich soil. Right. And then there's another eruption and so forth. So these layers are really irregular and random, even though the area looks flat. Okay. So they're building on this, like, sloppy-looking layer cake of sediment, ash, debris, organic matter, pumice, etc. Some of these layers, like, if you think about the frosting layers and the cake layers yeah. of the layer cake, yeah. some of those layers are wetter or like fluffier than others, they're all going to behave differently during large-scale geologic events. Right. And uh, please recall, we are right on the edge of a tectonic plate. Yeah, yeah. In CE sixty-two, there is a an earthquake. Yes, and it hits during a feast day. Oh no! So it's also like a super superstitious. Oh no! That's or nice. inauspicious time. There's widespread damage to the city. Yeah. Um, especially to the new Roman construction. Most of Pompeii was reduced pretty much to rubble at that point. Yep. Awesome. But they rebuild. <laughs> <laughs> right. The Romans are not super freaked out by this, as you or I would be. Right. They decide that now is the perfect time to build more and make things fancier. I... So they immediately start pouring money into new and improved building technology. Okay. So probably the best example of the new construction is the Central Baths Building, which is a complex of linked kind of hot water and cold water bathing pools. Oh. Yeah, it's... Um, this sounds like a nice... Nice vacation spot. It's gorgeous. It's got running water, plumbing, heating, window glass, a ton of statuary, fancy marble finishes, etc. All the stuff you associate with, you know, the empire of Rome. Yeah. So instead of people moving away, this area, and like Pompeii in particular, seem to really flourish. And within the next 15 years, the population grows to about 20,000 people. Wow. Okay. And that brings us to CE... 79. Yeah. So there's some rumblings. <laughs> there are a lot of rumblings. And all of a sudden everything goes to hell. <laughs> yeah. Vesuvius just begins to erupt. And we have exactly one eyewitness account. That is the Roman lawyer Pliny the Younger. Yeah. Who lives with his mother and his uncle at the family villa in Messenium. And the uncle is Pliny the yes. Elder. Yes, so we've got Pliny Jr., Pliny Sr. Although they're not actually Pliny uh, Jr. and Pliny Sr., they're uncle and nephew. It's really hard to keep them straight in my head. <laughs> but if you want to picture this, Pliny the Younger is like 17 and gorgeous and like super rich and just lies around eating grapes all yep. day and writing tons of letters. Pliny the Elder is a naval commander kind of a career politician, yeah. and he's also famous as a naturalist. Yeah, yeah. He, he was he was one of the first people to try to categorize uh, species of plants in 
Imperial Rome. Did he? I didn't know that. Yeah, Pliny the Elder's an interesting guy. He's super smart. His Naturalis Historia is essentially the direct ancestor of the encyclopedia. That's so cool. Yeah, Pliny the Elder was neat. Oh, Pliny the Elder. Anyway, so one day they're like hanging out on the front terrace of the family villa in Messenium, which is like gorgeous. (laughs) Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's south southwest of Vesuvius, and it's right on the Bay of Naples. They have this beautiful view. (laughs) They can see Pompeii. They can see Herculaneum. And they can Um, see Vesuvius. Yeah, so they're like out on their porch eating breakfast or whatever, and Pliny's mother notices that there's something weird going on over the mountain. There's a massive cloud that looks like a tree. Yes, the the pine tree Right. what he described it as. He describes it as a truck rising from the peak with branches splitting off. Now, nobody has ever seen anything like this over Vesuvius. Right. It's not a good sign. Because it hasn't erupted in (laughs) over a thousand years at this point. Right. And these guys are new to the air. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they weren't here a thousand years ago. What's going on? Uh, so the whole family has a look. Pliny and his mom are like, we need to make tracks and get out yep. of here. Pliny the Elder, as I said before, he has two jobs. He's a naturalist and he is also a naval yep. fleet He's commander. in command of the Roman fleet at Mycenaeum. Right. So as a naturalist, he wants to get a closer look so he can describe this phenomenon, which, again, is completely unfamiliar. Yep. And as the officer in charge of the fleet, he also realizes that he needs to go check on Pompeii and see if they need help evacuating. Yep, exactly. And so he gets the fleet together. And they sail away. One of his helmsmen tells him to turn back because they're getting showered with cinders, pumice, pieces of rock. Yep. According to, you know, the story, the helmsman is like, no, we got to turn around. And Pliny the Elder stares him down and says, fortune favors the brave. <laughs> Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, that's such a good line, though. So it comes from Pliny the Younger, who really loves his uncle. Yeah, well, wouldn't you? I mean, his uncle was cool. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, at this point, what they're experiencing is this kind of intermittent lapilli rain, which is a phenomenon where pebbles of volcanic debris are just, like, falling from the sky. Yeah. And this goes on for 18 hours. Oh, God. Yeah, but it gives people... Enough time to get out of the city. Now, which city is this? Is this Pompeii or is this Herculaneum? This is both cities. Oh, okay. So when it starts raining pebbles and there's this weird cloud over the volcano. They go to try to evacuate. Most of Pompeii and Herculaneum are like, uh, we need to go. Fair enough. And they head out. Not everybody leaves, unfortunately. Yeah. And conditions get a lot worse before Pliny the Elder can even get closer to the city. Pliny the Younger describes it like this, quote, Ashes were already falling, hotter and thicker as the ships drew near, followed by bits of pumice and blackened stones, charred and cracked by the flames. And then suddenly they were in shallow water, and the shore was blocked by debris from the mountain. So this is the beginning of the pyroclastic flow, which is the giant release of energy from the eruption. Okay. These are clouds of superheated ash and gas that come barreling down the slopes of the mountain with enough power to knock buildings over, and they're hot enough to just set things on fire. What kind of temperatures are we talking about with this? I'll get into temperatures in a minute. I just want you to imagine this, like, utter hellscape. So it's basically, like, an incredibly strong wind that's also superheated. And stinks, because it's full of sulfur. Awesome. 
That sounds like a bad day. Okay, so he's sailing his warships. Oh, right, and the sky is completely black. Yep. It is unbearably hot. Yeah. And then at the peak of the mountain, they start to be able to see this sheet of flame, Ugh. which is plenty the younger describes this as. And I think the most unsettling part of the story is that the shore isn't where it's supposed to be. Oh, no. Yeah. So they're sailing. They know that there are, like, docks. There's a waterfront ahead of them. They can't get to it because, like, the water is incredibly shallow and there's this debris in the way. But also, like, the shore is different <laughs> than it was. The shore is just in a different place yeah. than it's supposed to be. And people are trapped at the water's edge. Yep. So Pliny the Younger describes the human response like this. You could hear the shrieks of the women, the wailing of the infants, and the shouting of men. Some were calling their parents, others their children or their wives, trying to recognize them by their voices. People bewailed their own fate or that of their relatives, and there were some who prayed for death in their terror of dying. Many besought the aid of the gods, but still more imagined there were no gods left, and that the universe was plunged into eternal darkness forevermore. I mean, you've got to feel like that's the ending of the world right there. You know, That's what it must have felt like. That's apocalyptic. You know, you've got... It completely is, yeah. God. Okay, so... Uncle Pliny can't get to Pompeii. No. Although he can't dock at the harbor in Pompeii, he manages to make landfall at a settlement south of Pompeii, and he goes to the house of his friend Tascus. Okay. Pliny the Younger describes it as his uncle was trying to calm everyone down, and he was just like such a hero. None of this bothered him. Yeah. He demonstrates extreme chill, basically. Well, I mean, he calls for dinner and he takes a nap. <laughs> if you're if you're gonna be a military commander in Imperial Rome, you mm -hmm. need an awful lot of chill because, right. you know, you, you're dealing with lots of variables at once. And if you're the kind of person who panics, uh, you're not going to do very well. And Pliny the Elder does not panic. No. He has dinner, and he takes a nap. Yes, <laughs> I saw that. And and they have to wake him <laughs> because he's snoring so loudly. Yep. Uh, also, he's in his 50s. He's overweight, and he probably yeah. has asthma. Yeah. So he is also probably, like, genuinely exhausted by his trip. And he's walking into an ash cloud, so that's not going to help anything. Right. Uh, so when he's asleep, the ash fall and the earth tremors convince Tascus and his friends that they really need to be out of the house and walking away. Okay. So they drag Pliny outside and down to the shore. Uh, they have pillows tied to their heads yes. as protection. I saw that. Yes. They, they tie pillows to their heads to keep them from getting brained by falling rocks. That's, yep. that's such a great moment right there. <laughs> but when they get to the shore, they can see the ships. Yeah. But the final and largest pyroclastic surge of the eruption hits just as they make it to the shore, and they can't get into the water. They can't get onto the ships. Uh, the water is also very hot at this point. Okay. And it could have been just that they didn't have a way to get to the to ships. The sh because, okay, so like through yeah. the shallows and everything. Okay. Right, because there's just like this incredible rain. Everything's yep. hot. The, the wind is crazy. Yep. They just can't get out there. Okay. And on the beach, Pliny starts begging for water. He collapses, and then he dies. Yeah. He's not buried in ash, so they're within the ash cloud, but they're far enough south so that his body is... Still intact. It's definitely still intact, yeah. and his body is probably removed, but it's at least observed 
after the eruption is over. Okay. So he does seem to have died of suffocation okay. or a heart attack. Um, but what Pliny the Younger describes is that his uncle is lying on the beach as though asleep. Yeah. Um, but he's passed away. And the others in that party ultimately escape by land, right? They they don't make yeah. it to the ships, so they, they get by. They just walk out of the cloud. Yeah. And uh, Pliny the Younger and his mother and that household do the same thing. They flee on foot. Okay. And they can see the lava off in the distance. They keep getting caught in like showers of hot ash, but they are able to walk out of the ash cloud eventually. Gosh. Okay. So remember, these guys are like 10 or 20 kilometers outside Pompeii. Right. And in Pompeii, at least 1,500 people were not able to escape. Yeah. Now, there, there is the problem with the death figures in this disaster Mm-hmm. is that between Pompeii, Herculaneum, Oplantist, and Stabae, mm-hmm. you've got anywhere from 1,500 to 3,500, but possibly up to 16,000 yep. because there may have been bodies that were simply lost. The mm-hmm. confirmed deaths is 1,500 because that's how many bodies we've found. Right. Yikes. But the populations of the of those cities was, you know, huge. You yeah. know, sixteen thousand wouldn't be anywhere near out of the out of the question for that. Right. Um, and you gotta remember there was no real rescue effort after this. Oh well, yeah, yeah. So like no one was going down and digging out dead bodies right. from this from this ash. Right. So yeah, it could be any number of people who were actually caught in there. Yeah. So back in Pompeii, at least 1,500 people were not able to escape. Um, because the victims lay undisturbed where they fell, they were covered in hot ash and buried, kind of in situ for hundreds of years. Yeah. Modern scientists have been able to investigate exactly what happened to the city during the eruption. So before people started really digging in and researching like the cause of death, Yep. In Pompeii, the only eyewitness account we have is Pliny the Younger's, and he's saying that his uncle died by suffocation. So it's kind of assumed for a long time that the deaths in the city had the same root cause, that people, you know, the ashfall got so heavy that people couldn't breathe, and they just suffocated and kind of dropped where they fell. Okay, but we know differently about volcanoes in the modern sense, right? Because if, right. if you have a pyroclastic surge we know that that is a huge amount of hot toxic gases as well as all that ash where Mm -hmm. i mean temperatures can get up to 300 degrees celsius which is nearly 600 degrees fahrenheit which you know i mean that'll kill somebody in a fraction of a second right and pyroclastic surges are subject to the same laws of physics that other kind of gas emissions are so they are predictable and you can look at the signs that they leave behind which includes like damage from heat, um, ash deposit, things like that. So if you know what you're looking for, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence in Pompeii about exactly how many surges there were and what they look like. Okay. Can I can I talk for a second about the lead silverware? Yes. <laughs> so that blew my mind. One of the things that they found was a set of lead silverware that had been melted to I believe it was a, a, a table mm-hmm. and lead melts at like 450 degrees celsius which is over 800 degrees fahrenheit (laughs) so 
Yeah, you you're not walking away from any of that. Like that's j- and and because it happened so quickly, you just you just boiled to death in in less than a second and you're done. Right. Yikes. Yikes. And it seems like so the new research, I'm thinking especially of some research that came out in 2010. Yeah. They looked at the behavior of these pyroclastic surges. Yeah. Especially not the gases or the debris that they were carrying necessarily, but the heat that is associated with the surges as they come out of the volcano. Right. And what they found was that the heat itself killed the majority of the people trapped in the city. Yeah. And just so you can imagine, the heat, the temperature that they found to be, quote, incompatible with human survival, end quote. <laughs> yeah, okay, yep. <laughs> I love how they put that. I mean, that's, 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 that, you can't say it's not accurate. <laughs> no, but it's a lot lower than I thought. The surge at 250 degrees Celsius, which is just under 500 degrees Fahrenheit, that's like broiler heat. Yeah. So humans can't survive. No, no, we're not built for that. Even if they are sheltered <laughs> inside a building. God. And then another thing they looked at specifically were the poses of the victims and where they were found. Especially the ones that are all curled up, right? That's that's a huge right. thing. And one of the things that makes this such a compelling disaster story is the evidence of how people looked when they were caught in the pyroclastic surges. Yeah. So in most of those cases, you have these curled up poses where... You know, people are pulling their arms in front of their face and kind of huddling, like, knees to chest. And then seeing plaster casts of humans and animals, like, curled up trying to protect their faces. You know, it's horrifying because it's so relatable. Yeah. And they look like they're in just tremendous pain that has been going on for a long time. I think the one that gets me is the the so-called Garden of the Fugitives, Mm. where there's actually a cast of a woman holding a small child close to her and they're both you know oh it's awful yeah it is unimaginably horrible the uh one of the one of the cool sciencey things though can 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 i talk for a second about what intense heat did to their internals sure okay so this heat was so intense that people's hearts lungs livers like most of their internal organs and their blood were actually vaporized. So I guess we can say it's more humane than suffocating to death because it was Absolutely. over very, very quickly. If you can call any of this cool, one of the coolest things that came out of this was um, it's an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm-hmm. They found a brain that had become vitrified. No way. So vitrification is when... A substance becomes glass. Oh, my God. That's so wild. Yeah. Oh, my God. The pictures are wild. What they have is they have the uh, material that was taken from the cranial cavity of one of the victims. And this is somebody at Herculaneum. So not in Pompeii, but in Herculaneum. Mm -hmm. This brain was actually vitrified into essentially black glass. That is wild. I did not come across that. Yeah. Somebody's brain was turned to glass by this eruption that's the kind of heat we're talking about Ooh. one of the one of the theories is that one of the pyroclastic surges reached over 800 degrees celsius jeez i mean that's just that's bananas that's like it, venus yeah. that's like surface of venus yeah yeah that's it's it's not quite the sun but you're within you know spitting distance yeah you know the other interesting conclusion that they came to that i also wanted to touch on was that it made no difference whether you were out in the street or sheltering inside a building yeah. You know, when the no. heat got to that point, you were you were done for. 
Yeah, that that much heat, there's no wall that can protect you. Oh, sadly. Yeah. They didn't do this research for fun. No. It's supposed to inform evacuation efforts in similar disasters. Yeah, exactly. It's supposed to inform response to volcanic eruptions in populated locations. Which is super important because we all know that uh, volcanoes do continue to erupt and they do continue to kill people. Including Mount Vesuvius. Yes. Mount Vesuvius is like one of... (laughs) <laughs> Mount Vesuvius is actually one of the most dangerous volcanoes in the world. It's such a drama queen. Because there are about 3 million people living close enough to it that would be affected by an eruption from it. And mm-hmm. there are about half a million to 600,000 that live in, if it erupts, you die in that yep. danger zone. Unsettling. The other thing is that, well, Vesuvius has erupted twice in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. It all out erupted in 1906, killed about 100 people, and then it erupted again in 1944. And between 1913 and 1944, it kept, like, dribbling out lava. So it was filling up this caldera of molten rock, and then it blew its top again in 1944. But this... This eruption was interesting because most of the uh, activity was actually confined to within the rim itself. Mm-hmm. So it didn't like it didn't do the big explosion that everybody thought it would, but it still it still had lava flows that absolutely wiped out villages. Mm-hmm. There, it, so oh, Vesuvius, Vesuvius is still going, guys. <laughs> this is not a uh, this is not a uh, dormant volcano, right? And it will erupt again. Um, they just, they're just not sure when. So you know that whole, uh, Funiculi Funicula mm-hmm. song? Yeah. So that is about the funicular cable car that used to carry people up Mount Vesuvius. Okay. Mm-hmm. They put a cable car up it in, in 1880 and the Funiculi Funicula song was uh, to commemorate the opening of that cable car. No kidding. And the cable car was destroyed in the 1944 eruption. Not the 1906 eruption, but the 1944 <laughs> eruption. And now it is a national park. It was declared such in 1995. Yes. But they let visitors go up to the summit and walk around the volcano? Yeah, you can do the same thing in Hawaii. I I don't want to. You and I don't want to, but we are (laughs) way on the timid end of the risk-taking spectrum. (laughs) And I I think some people are like... risks (laughs) differently. Some people are like, cool, let's go see some lava. I don't want my brain to wind up on some some scientist don't want to be vitrified. table. Yeah, <laughs> being like, isn't this neat how this was completely vitrified? Yeah. It's not me. I agree, I agree. But let's go back to uh, Pompeii for a minute. Yeah, please. Um, Pompeii in the early times. So right after this eruption, obviously Pompeii is buried under something like 20 feet of hot you know, compacted volcanic ash. It's Gosh. not, when you think about ash, you think about digging in it like snow, but that's not, yeah. you can't, it's too heavy. That's not volcanic ash, yeah. Right, and it's it's like hot. You can't, yeah. like, go there and dig your house out. <laughs> For one, what house? And <laughs> Right. <laughs> and two, of course you can't. You're, you're, you know, oh. So people did, like, return to the area to try and, like, dig out their valuables, and there were, like, there were definitely 
I guess we can call them like salvagers if we want to be nice. Sure. Who saw an opportunity to get a few nice things for free. So we're call them salvagers, not. <laughs> and they would like take the statues that had been on rooftops. They would dig those out and take them away. Okay. Um, and they might have also tunneled into some of the buildings that okay. were still standing. Uh, but it's really unclear. And th- these are small buildings. They're not multi-story sure. towers. A few things are still visible, like the tops of statues and the tops of roofs. But most of the houses have collapsed, and it's not safe to just start digging around. All that agricultural land is completely gone. Yeah. And uh, the shoreline, which used to be right at the city wall, is now like half a kilometer away. God. So the Roman government looks at this mess, and they're just kind of like, eh. Oh, <laughs> what? They just give up on Pompeii? So from their point of view, if they start digging it out, they're not going to... They're not going to be repaid for their efforts. Like, it's just a bunch of collapsed buildings and dead bodies down there. Fair enough. Nobody wants to live there anymore, obviously, because now they know what can happen. Um, You can't grow anything there. You can't trade because the roads are covered and the harbor is covered. It's basically just a lost cause at this point. Yeah, they cut their losses and move on. So nobody rebuilds. Um, And it seems like at this point, Pompeii is kind of forgotten about, even though it's not actually buried that deep. Enough things are poking up out of the ground, even after the area gets overgrown, that the kind of like plain or meadow that exists on top of the ash is called the city. Because like you can walk around and see the top of a column over here or like a roof peak over there. And people do know that there is something under there, but it's just left alone for a long time. In the 1590s, workers... Digging an aqueduct, find underground walls and kind of evidence of the kind of like mosaic and fresco work we associate with Pompeii now. Okay. But nobody really takes notice. Nobody starts digging it out. It isn't until the 1700s that archaeologists become interested in excavating the ruins. And they don't start in Pompeii. They start over in Herculaneum, okay. which is a nearby city. And Herculaneum is arguably a more interesting site to excavate. It's under a deeper layer of ash, yep. but it's smaller and wealthier than Pompeii. And because of where it lay in the pyroclastic surges, it's directly to the west of Vesuvius okay. instead of south like Pompeii. So it got this like more intense heat faster. And for some reason, the organic material there is better preserved. Huh. Fewer buildings are knocked over. Okay. So if you... Dig out a house in Herculaneum. You can find things like olive oil and clothing and wine yeah. and papyrus. There is a house in Herculaneum that had a kind of private library full of papyrus scrolls, which are still legible. Wow. Yeah. So it heated to the point where human beings' internal organs vaporized, but, but papyrus, papyrus was didn't fine. burn. And let's focus on that because what? papyrus is, <laughs> is super important. Wow. So at the shoreline, the excavation finds hundreds of skeletonized human remains, which are, of course, invaluable for determining things like dress and health and nutrition and lifestyle. When people realize that a whole city was preserved and could be dug out, and let's face it, there's treasure down there. These people have jewelry. There is like artwork. There's coins. There's all sorts of stuff. Sculpture. Yeah. So then people start getting interested in digging around Pompeii, and there are kind of these sporadic digs throughout the area, including the first like methodical street-by-street efforts. 
That's happening throughout the 19th century. Okay. And this is also the same point when archaeologists realize that they are finding skeletal remains inside human-shaped voids in the ash. Yeah. And someone comes up with the idea of injecting plaster into the voids to show what the bodies look like when they fell. Yeah. Which is interesting. You know, they still do that now, but they use resin instead of plaster. Sure. Because it allows access to the bones and whatever else they find in there. So right around 1900, the excavations really pick up. And the reporting becomes more formal and community-minded. I actually found an issue of American Journal of Archaeology from 1901. Did you see this? Wow. No, I didn't yeah, see that Yeah, it's one. wild. That's <laughs> it's cool. It's been digitized. <laughs> oh, thank God for archivists. <laughs> I know. And in this, this had an article that listed everything that had been done in Pompeii over the last season, including, quote, in July 1899, an ancient country inn was discovered between the river Sarno and the Stabian Gates of Pompeii. Here, the skeletons of 70 or 80 persons have been found, evidently fugitives from the great eruption of 79 AD. Some 20 of these belonged to a party of rank and wealth. Wow. Gold bracelets, necklaces, and rings were found upon their necks, arms, and fingers. One person among them seems to have been of especial importance. Canizaro's suggestion that the skeleton of the distinguished person is that of Pliny the Elder hardly deserves mention. <laughs> Pliny's body was found after the eruption and doubtless removed by his friends. Whoa. End quote. <laughs> I know they get so petty. They get, they get a little, uh, yeah, jeez. Uh, can you just imagine, like, American archaeologists of 1900 sitting you around You did arguing. not just find Pliny. <laughs> I, yes. He only had small change in his pockets, and we know. I can absolutely <laughs> imagine people doing that, yes. Of course, all this excavation and all this interest yep. kind of becomes a double-edged sword uh, because people are digging things out. It's You almost see the same thing happening in Egypt at the same time. Okay. People yep. are digging out, I was but they're looking say. for treasure. They're looking <laughs> for... They're not necessarily... Yeah. yeah. So even though it's becoming more formal and structural and almost like peer-reviewed at this point, yeah. uh, it's still like a lot of excavation is happening very fast. The people who are doing the digging aren't necessarily trained very well. Sure. And the worst part is that once Herculaneum and Pompeii begin to emerge from the ash, which has kept out oxygen and everything else for hundreds of years. Stuff starts to rot. Stuff starts to rot, sure. yeah. yeah. And the city is more fragile than you think of a Roman city being. There's a lot sure. more wood in the architecture. Okay, yeah. And a lot of the decoration is plaster work. So frescoes, which are paint that's worked into plaster yep. and uh, the mosaics which are tiny tiles pressed into wet plaster yeah and of course any organic remains just start to decay almost immediately that makes sense yep it's just it's really depressing so, <laughs> so pompeii is like inaccessible and perfectly safe for <laughs> 1500 years and then we start digging and then people start digging it up and yeah oh well um so one People, there are some efforts. So some of the smaller artifacts are held in museums in Naples, and there's an on-site museum that also has some things. Uh, the plaster casts of people are, like, removed indoors to uh, be preserved. Okay. And there are protective structures built over a few areas. But most of the ruins, and this is a giant site. This yeah, is a whole city. It's an entire city, exactly, yeah. So most of the ruins are directly exposed to things like weather, pollution, light, uh, people. Yeah. So vandalism and theft as well. Yeah. One excavated building collapses in uh, 2010. 
Another building has a fresco hacked out of the wall, oh, come on. which is then sold on the black market. It's retrieved later, but I'm just like, God, how? Come on, man. How do you get the idea to hack a fresco out of a wall? I just. I mean, it's sort of a callback to the to putting the Mona Lisa in the bottom of a trunk. Just don't don't do that, people. Yep, it's that same stomachache that, that I get when I talk about art being disrespected and. Deep breath. All right, deep breath. So at one point, the ruins are also overrun by feral dogs. And this is a okay, problem so, because... So talk to me about the feral dogs. What is, <laughs> what is the deal with the feral dogs, please? I'm calling them feral dogs. They're really stray dogs. Okay. Um, so apparently, southern Italy has a huge problem with stray dogs and cats. Okay. Um, it's not the thing to spay or neuter your dogs and cats. And it is the thing to kind of drop them off when you don't want to keep them anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's sidebar about this problem. Yeah. It seems like a good example of how like slow and difficult the conservation efforts have been. Uh, the dog problem gets out of control in the 1990s. Okay. So the state park that covers Pompeii and Herculaneum is huge. It's 92 hectares. It's not necessarily fenced in everywhere. Okay. Um, so animals kind of come and go. And these packs of dogs start living there because... When people start coming to the ruins as tourists, they start feeding the dogs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember, the dogs are domesticated. They're not dangerous. Sure. They're, like, going to come up and ask for treats. Yep. And people are going to provide treats. And, of course, the population within the city takes off because no one is making sure that these guys are spayed. And also, at this point, the park becomes kind of known in the area. I apologize. This is horrible. Yeah. If you have a dog you don't want, just go ahead and drop it off in Pompeii, and it will have a nice life there with treats and friends. Nope. 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 No, I don't like this. So, (laughs) eventually people realize that it's a real problem. Yeah. The government sets aside money to deal with catching and eliminating the dogs. And when you say eliminating, you mean putting them down, I mean euthanize, yeah. yeah. Uh, However, the person in charge of the project embezzles all the money. (laughs) What? The Dog population gets even worse. Um, The dogs become more aggressive. Okay. And all right. Anyway, that person's caught and goes to jail. A couple years later, another organization is founded. It's a private one. It's funded by donations. And these guys start picking up the dogs. They're actually supported by, this is so funny, the Italian Anti-Vivisection League. Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Is vivisecting such a huge deal that you need a league to combat it? You know, I want to say it's one of those, like, holdovers from Victorian times Uh, where, like, it's, like, the forerunner of, like, the Humane Society. Gotcha, gotcha. And they've just kind of hung on to that title, Mm -hmm. the anti-vivisection. Because that's a fantastic title. I want to, I want all, like, animal animal welfare groups to rename (laughs) themselves anti-vivisection leagues now. Don't vivisect. (laughs) Be a friend. Uh, So, anyway, these guys, this is a smaller scale effort, but nobody's embezzling. So... This one actually starts to work. It starts picking up the dogs, it gets them vet care, and it adopts them out. Yay, we love adoption of dogs. Yes. So these these people are much more successful because, again, the dogs are not wild dogs. They're described as, like, happy, social, trainable, good boys and good girls. Yeah. And the, the uh, group gives them Roman names. Okay. So, like, who wouldn't want a gorgeous Italian puppy named, like, Diomedes or a Vulcan? <laughs> uh, yes. I, I would absolutely adopt a Vulcan who was used to be a stray dog in Pompeii. Are you kidding me? Right? They would have so many good stories. They would. 
So this effort is successful. Like, it does work. Good. But it takes them years and years to get all the dogs out. Okay. And they still need to keep an eye on the area because people, people still, still keep dump their dropping dogs off yep. their dogs. Gah. Yeah. Despite a huge fine and so forth. Humans, they ruin everything. <laughs> they just really do. Uh, deep breath for the puppies. <laughs> yes. Be better to your so puppies. So UNESCO... UNESCO and the Italian government are cooperating now on conservation and restoration. They want to, I think generally, globally, people recognize that the area needs to be preserved as a cultural heritage site. Yeah. The Antiquarium is their on-site museum. Oh, cool. And it held a grand reopening last month. Oh, neat. January 2021. Cool. Although at the moment, Italy's COVID restrictions only allow locals to visit. That's smart. That's a good idea. Yeah, but I'm just, I'm super happy that it's actually like up and running again because it was closed for like 40 years. And one of the coolest things about like the historical site of Pompeii is that now that these <laughs> things are excavated, you, you're you literally walking through Pompeii. You're not like right. walking over the top of all this ash and being like, oh, this, you, you, you know, like you described earlier, seeing like the head of a statue poke through the ground. You're walking down the streets and past the buildings like yeah it's, it's so super cool. cool there are some really neat pictures out there for those of you who are interested of how the pompeii project has been like restoring and um safely excavating apparently it takes 25 minutes to walk from one corner of pompeii to the other that sounds like a nice i love this too. i love this quote from a uh, from a guy who works on the pompeii site he says it was a small town but it's an enormous monument oh that's such a good way to look yeah. at it so even with the best efforts, there is unfortunately the slow ongoing decay, sunlight, air, pollution. Yeah. And let's not forget, there is always the possibility of another eruption because yeah. Vesuvius is still very active. Yes. So conservation is ongoing and it is a priority. I will close with a quote from the 1996 World Monuments Watch catalog, which states, quote, not only is the area unstable geologically, but the ruins have been exposed to the weather for nearly 250 years. Like living cities, ancient Pompeii requires continuing public works and surveillance. Excavated since 1748, it has never had a concerted conservation effort commensurate with its scale. A general plan of restoration and interpretation of ancient Pompeii needs to begin in earnest. It's a double disaster or a triple disaster. Right. But with puppies. Yeah. <laughs> The original disaster and then the, the disaster of excavating the darn thing. I mean, and the fact that there are still so many people living near there. And mm -hmm. uh, the Italian government is trying. They're really trying to reduce the population that are living in that danger zone. They've established the national park, so there's no new construction. They've stopped excavation as well. I can't remember yes, if I yes. They stopped excavation. Noted that. And they're also they also offer people financial incentive to not live there. Like if you're going to move from mm -hmm. there to somewhere else, they'll give you money. What they're struggling against is that it's still a huge agricultural production area. It, it is, and it's so somebody has to live there. Yeah, I mean, well, to take care of the olive trees. Yeah, pretty much. And and the thing is, is that they keep it under incredibly close monitoring. Yeah. They have the Osservatorio Vesuvio, which is in Naples, Ooh. and they keep track of the gases that come out of it. Uh, they use satellite-based synthetic aperture radar to watch the ground movement and make sure that, you know, we're not getting 
earthquakes that we wouldn't register necessarily on the surface but are having subterraneanly and might cause an eruption. Mm-hmm. And right now, the the level of magma is at or below 10 kilometers of the surface. It's not going to erupt tomorrow. But if, they, if that starts coming up, you know, people need to get out of there, which is one of the reasons why the Italian government is trying to get people to move away. Because in the worst case scenario, when Vesuvius erupts again... They want to be able to get everybody evacuated. Mm-hmm. Right now, the absolute best estimates is it will take three days to evacuate everybody living there. Right, but we know that's not going to work because you're yeah. only going to have 18 hours. Yeah, yeah. if that. And and there was a false alarm in 1984. Oh, I didn't know that. They thought, yeah, they thought it was going to blow again, and they evacuated 40,000 people. Fortunately, it did not erupt, so... Yay. Can you imagine having volcano drills instead of fire drills? Uh, yeah, I can. And here's the other thing. Like, Vesuvius is, we should talk about this. Vesuvius is a gorgeous mountain. Like, if you it see really is. the pictures of Vesuvius at sunset, it is gorgeous. The helicopter footage of the crater wall is beautiful. But, yeah, guys, it's still, you know, relatively active. Yeah. All right, so advice for time travelers. You're going to need to leave. <laughs> You're going to need to leave when the Lapilli rain starts, when pebbles start falling out of the sky. Just yeah. pack your stuff. Don't worry about the furniture. Don't worry about the valuables. Just just leave. Just go. Yeah. And you're going to want to walk north. Yes. You're going to want to keep the mountain on your right and just, just go a few kilometers north and you'll be out of the way. Because there's going to be this nasty tephra wind that's going to kick up and and that that's no fun. Dress lightly because it's going to be extremely hot. <laughs> Dress Bring lightly. lots of water. <laughs> yes, and if your temperature starts getting above 300 degrees Celsius, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Come on, no. man. Just yeah, enjoy go, turning to glass. Go north. Go north. Go north. And keep the mountain on your right and you'll be all right. But, uh, yeah, and maybe maybe, uh, maybe go out to the boat and tell Pliny the Elder to uh, to stay out of the ash cloud. I think his heart was in the right place. I think his heart was absolutely in the right place. But but I want more encyclopedias. I'm not convinced that, that he died because he was caught in the eruption. Because it seems like his friends were fine. Yeah, that's true. I think he might have just had a heart attack. or Which happens, you know? Yeah. And that's one of the theories of his death, is that he had a heart attack. He wasn't. He definitely wasn't killed in the, uh, in the pyroclastic surge that, you know, melted everybody. Right. And I would say roasted, not melted. Fair enough. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disaster at gmail.com, or why not shame us publicly at our Instagram account at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? All right. We are going to travel forward 18 centuries-ish to Boston for the Great Molasses Flood, which occurred in January of 1919. Oh, this is going to be a fun one. Oh, it's it's it, it sounds fun, but it's actually kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's super sad, but um, it's also super interesting. I can't wait to talk about that with you.